Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Ecclesiastes 12, 1 through 14. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come and the years approach, when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain. When the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, when the grinders cease because they are few and those looking through the windows grow dim. When the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades. When people rise up at the sound of birds, but all their songs grow faint. When people are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets, when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags itself along and desire no longer is stirred, then people go to their eternal home and mourners go about the streets. Remember him before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the wheel broken at the well. And the dust returns to the ground it came from, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless, the conclusion of the matter. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched, searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The word of the wise are like goads, their collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them, of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard. Here is a conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. The word of the Lord. So for the last uh, seven weeks, uh, we have considered the wisdom of the, um, the book of Ecclesiastes. For many, uh, I know that as we've gone through it, it's felt a lot like uh, a lack of wisdom. If you've uh, been tracking with us at all, uh, you know that the teacher seems to be quite cynical about life over and over again. Uh, it seems as though he's putting forth for us um, a presentation of how meaningless our lives are, a presentation of how the, ver- the very things that we so often centralize our meaning in life on, uh, that in the end they're hevel as he said over and over again, they're meaningless, that for him, your meaning in life is meaningless. Uh, And so often, as we've seen, uh, what we've come to realize is that in the end, as we saw in particular back in chapter 4, that our lives are really no more valuable than the animals. We're going to live an unknown length of time, we're going to die, and then eventually we're going to be forgotten by everybody that we love. No one is going to remember us. But what we've seen, though this has been the message of the teacher, what we've seen is that he's been attempting to articulate for us what a life looks like, quote, under the sun. He said that over and over again, a phrase he's used time and time again to show us 
what life looks like when we only view it from the uh, confines of this world. You know, this book was written from really the perspective of a skeptic, one who doesn't consider, consider the transcendent, doesn't consider uh, the meaning that God gives to us. He's putting himself into that mindset and making conclusions based on a lack of transcendence. And he concludes that if life under the sun is all that you believe to exist, then you really need to be honest enough to admit that nothing you do matters. Your very existence is ultimately meaningless. This, however, is not all the Bible has to say about our lives. In fact, in many ways, Ecclesiastes, as we've said, asks the questions about life, and it's the rest of the Bible that gives us the answer to some of those questions. Uh, And for those with life under the sun, though that that is meaningless, there is a meaning that comes beyond what's under the sun, that there is this transcendence that transforms our understanding of the now and all that we do here in the now. And in this final week of the series, we see the culminating wisdom of the teacher. In this final chapter, we find what we are ultimately longing for, which is a sense of direction in life. I mean, if there was anything that we so often tend to long for, is that not one of the things? Where is my life heading? What should I be doing with my life? And though this series has been a good way for us to evaluate um, how the elements of life point us to our direction and our meaning in life, what we are going to see today is that the, uh, the teacher actually gives us incredibly practical advice about how we are to live this life now. You know, in a lot of ways, the book of Ecclesiastes, it's a, it's a philosophical book. But today, it's actually incredibly practical. And so what I want to do, I want to consider this longing that we have for direction in life. And I want to look at the practical, the practical realities that the teacher puts in front of us by considering how our lives are often viewed. We often think about our lives, uh, our lives past, our lives present, and our lives future. And I want us to see how the past, the present, and the future all together show us ultimately our direction in life. Okay, so let's consider that. Let's first, let's consider what the teacher has to say about the past when considering our future. Uh, you know, it's, it's been said that uh, if you want to know where you're going, um, you need to know where you've come from. And basically, this is what the teacher is showing us in verses 1 through 6. This passage, 1 through 6, is essentially a poem uh, in which the teacher considers a life that he's lived. Uh, And biblical commentators and scholars, when they're looking at this, they believe that this poem in verses 1 through 6 is actually calling to mind a funeral. And so what that means is that the, the teacher is considering the wisdom that can really only be had when someone is on their deathbed. And they're thinking back, reflecting on life. And he's essentially saying that uh, for, for those that he's writing to, to remember how good you had it in life before life really kicked your butt. He said this. Let me read it for you. He said, remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come and the years approach, when, they, when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow, and the clouds return after the rain. I mean, this man is reflecting on his coming death, and he's saying, listen, remember the simplicity of youth before the cares and the burdens and responsibilities of life wore you down. And isn't that true as you get older? 
that you think about the past in that way. Isn't it true that as you get older, you look back on those who are, you look at those who are young and you think, my, 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 you just don't know how good you have it right now. I mean, parents do this with their children. Children do it with their siblings. We all have a tendency to do this with younger generations. You know, as an, an old millennial that was, you know, kind of right on the edge of being part of the Gen X generation, I look at Gen Z and I think, my, 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 you do not know how good you have it. You go, you got to go all the way through high school with a computer in your pocket that just lets you look up stuff in a flash. When I was in high school, we had to wait for the, the free AOL CD to come in the mail so that I could hook up our one phone line to our one family computer just so that I could pull up a website that would take 15 minutes to load only to find out that there was no relevant information on that website and now my entire family is upset with me because I tied up the phone line to access the internet. Some of you might not have any idea what I'm talking about. But then, of course, you've got, you've got boomer, uh, the boomers who look at me and Gen Xers and think, you guys don't know how good you had it. Because let me tell you something about the way I had to grow up. And you know what's interesting about this? Is that they're right, right? I mean, we're all right. In some sense, you just don't realize how good you have it until you've gotten further down the line and you're looking back on your younger self thinking how good it how good it really is. And so here what we have is the teacher saying, listen, I'm on my deathbed reflecting on life. And you really should enjoy life now because as you get older, you're going to experience new responsibilities, new pains, new disappointments, and challenges. If it hadn't already, if it hasn't already, life is going to bring many hardships to you, many sorrows. And the older you get, the more you realize that's true. And when you look in the rearview mirror, I do wonder what we see back there. The older we get, the more we're going to see. There really is something important about us being able to look behind us. If we're going to properly understand where we are and where we're going, we can never really appreciate the direction of our lives until we fully appreciate what's in our rearview mirror. And so I do wonder, what's in your rearview mirror? Because I know for some, as you look back and as you look in that rearview mirror, you're going to see a lot of painful experiences. Life has been difficult. And I know that for many, as you look back on these painful experiences, it's often uh, elusively impossible to understand why some of those experiences are there. You know, as a pastor, I talk with people all the time who are reflecting on real hardship that they've experienced in the past and they have no real idea about why God would have allowed it. And if, if anything, there's probably many things that could be said about what God might be doing. But if anything, we also acknowledge that those experiences of the past, they really do help shape how we view and experience the present, don't they? I mean, for better or worse, who you are and who you have become is because of the past experiences that you've had. We are all an accumulation of various experiences, you know, for some, you might look back and you might see a lot of painful experiences and as a result, you can recognize the way that that's shaping you now. But there's also some, when you look back on your life, maybe you were spared from certain experiences in life, right? The lack of experiences in your past has also made you who you are even now. And this is a little bit of a side note, but this is why I'm often confused by those who reject the notion of privilege 
I mean, privilege is essentially a lack of certain experiences that lead you to experience certain benefits. So some of us were raised with maybe the privilege of knowing both of our parents. Maybe you've never thought about it that way, but that has in some way, of course, shaped you. Some of us have never known what it's like for our skin color to be the reason why you're marginalized, or some might not know what it's like to grow, in an, uh, grow up in an unsafe neighborhood with bad schools. I mean, none of those things, of course, are things that we control, and yet they very much shape us to be who we are. And so while I'll we'll say this again, for better or worse, it's important just to note our experiences of the past or our lack of experiences of the past shape us into who we are now. And it's really hard for us to properly understand what God might be doing in our lives now or into the future without acknowledging the ways that we've been shaped by our past. Without that historic reflection, knowing the direction of your life is going to be blurry at best. It's going to be difficult. And as verse 8 has told us, everything is meaningless unless we can see how God might be working. So with all of that said, as a teacher reflecting on his past, the wisdom that he's accumulated over the course of his life, we too need to do the same in order that we can better understand our present. Uh, let me reread for you verses 9 through 11. And before I do, let me just quickly uh, explain something to you that's actually going to take us back to week one, just so you're not confused. Uh, what we had said back in week one is that the majority of Ecclesiastes is uh, an author writing the words of the teacher. Okay, So the teacher is kind of this uh, this wise figure that someone else is writing about. And so what we have here in verse 9 is the author kind of taking over again, taking over the narrative again, which is why he now begins to speak of the teacher. Um, and so just so you're not confused, that's what's happening here. But this is what verse 9 says. It says, Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set uh, in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads or a cattle prod uh, that points uh, cattle in the right direction. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them, of making many books, there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Now, there are some, when considering, the, uh, considering life, let me explain what he's saying there, who do become obsessed with trying to search for answers. They attempt to understand every scenario and every possible perspective. They try to accumulate every bit of wisdom possible. And the author is saying that as you're on that pursuit, to be careful because it will exhaust you. As you're considering the past, trying to figure out answers to the past and consider the answers for the questions of the future, be careful. Because there is no way in a thousand lifetimes that you're ever going to actually get all the answers available. For some, this, the most pressing questions of life wear you down because it's so impossible to discover what the answers might be. And so he's saying, be careful. Now, I will also say that he's not saying that we should not be uh, critical thinkers who are trying to discover wisdom. But there is something about overthinking what we cannot possibly understand or know. Because often life brings to us um, problems and issues and questions that we as humans are never going to fully be able to understand within this lifetime. And so as we're thinking about the direction of our lives, we need to be able to stop and say, okay, 
I know that I cannot have all the answers. I know I'm not going to understand fully what's going on in the past. I'm not going to fully understand what's going on in the future. But what can I understand now? What is it that God has already said to me now? What is it that he has shown me that I ought to be doing now? And the answer to that question is found in verses 13 and 14. This is the, uh, this is the teacher's solution to the conundrums of life. Okay, this is where he thinks we should land. Verse 13 says this. Now all has been heard, and here is the conclusion of the matter. Okay, you ready? This is the answer he gives to all the questions in life. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. Verse 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. It's an interesting response to all the major questions of life. Life is full of uncertainty. There are so many questions about our meaning and our purpose, so many problems that come as a result of the life that we live, so many crises of, identi- of identity where we, we just don't know who we are or what we should be doing or where we should be going. And his answer to those great questions are, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. That's it. You might want all the answers to your questions, but in the end, all you can do is know God and know what he's called you and commanded you to do now. You know, this reminds me, that kind of answer, it reminds me of a passage of scripture that has always jarred me. Every single time I read it, it stops me in my tracks. And that's found in the book of Job. We, we mentioned Job last week. I've mentioned this passage before um, uh, in previous sermons, but it, it always strikes me. Just a reminder, Job is a righteous man who has done nothing wrong. He's a righteous, moral man. Uh, but his entire life is upended. He, his entire family is killed. His, all of his wealth is taken from him. He loses his health. And the entire book of Job is him processing this loss before God. He's processing his past to try to discover why God has allowed this to happen. And for the entire book, almost the entire book, God never gives him an answer. But then in chapter 38 of Job, after all of this wrestling... God finally responds to Job. And God's response to Job, again, this always strikes me. If you can imagine Job in this pit of despair, God says to Job, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? God speaking to Job, brace yourself like a man. I will question you. Up until this point, Job has been questioning God. God is now saying, I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. The whole chapter goes on like that. The whole chapter is God coming to Job saying, you think you, so, you know so much. Let me ask you some questions. And it's, it's a little disconcerting reading that because it's not the kind of response that we want from God, where God shows us his bigness, his glory, in comparison to our feebleness and our lack of knowledge. God is essentially saying there are things that you cannot fathom, and yet those very things are like child's play to me. Now for some, again, that's a terrible response to get from God when you are asking very real questions. God is saying to Job, you can't possibly understand Or God is saying through the the teacher of Ecclesiastes, listen, just do what you're told. You've got all these questions about life, just do what you're told. 
And that might sound harsh and that might sound petty, but it's actually incredibly helpful and incredibly loving. Why? Because if God is God, then there must be realities of existence in this broken world that we cannot answer. If we could answer all that God knows, then God would not be God. He would just be one of us. There must be things that he knows outside of what we could possibly know. But those words to Job are also a reminder the extent to which God as creator is incomprehensibly greater than his creation. I mean, we need that reminder sometimes because often when we want answers from God, we expect him to give answers that suit our needs, our desires, our questions. But if he's God, he must be bigger and grander and incomprehensibly greater than we are as creation. I mean, the difference between God and creation is um, like the difference between William Shakespeare and Hamlet. You know, C.S. Lewis draws this out, that the only way that Hamlet could know who Shakespeare is is to the extent that Shakespeare introduces himself into the story of Hamlet. But Hamlet could not possibly, in a thousand lifetimes, comprehend the complexity of his author, of his creator, Shakespeare. I mean, that's the kind of difference that we have, even more so. And so here's what, we, here's what we've got. We've got God saying, listen, you can't, you can't have all the answers. And so I'm just going to give you a few things that you're supposed to actually do and know. And I know that that can seem like a cold response, but if you approach it in the way that he intends it, it's actually an incredible, incredibly practical approach. When we know we can't know everything, now we begin to focus on what we do actually know. And so what are those two things that God has said? He has said to fear me and to keep my commandments. What do those mean? Well, to fear God in the Bible, there are, there's basically two ways that you can understand that fear. Uh, number one, the first way, is that for those who do not believe, uh, there ought to be real fear as we think of fear of God's judgment. We see this in Luke uh, 12, Hebrews 10. You cannot read the Bible without running into the reality that God is a judge and he will judge all of us. And so for those that don't trust in him, there ought to be real fear. But there's another way that the Bible talks about fear for those who do trust him. And so to fear God when we trust him is not to be afraid of him, but because over and over again, we're told that we ought not to be afraid, but rather to fear God is to experience a reverent awe at who he is, to be able to see him as a powerful and mighty and matchless God who is also loving and compassionate and generous and gracious and just and good. I mean, those are the reasons why we gather together every single week because we will spend a lifetime trying to consider and understand the depths of who he is, to put ourselves before him in this reverent awe. And so one of the things that God calls us to do in life is to fear him, to see him, to grow in our knowledge of him so that we might see him rightly. But then, with that reverence and awe, as a result, we obey him. He has given us commands, commands that reflect what he desires for us and for his creation. And we will spend a lifetime learning how to best obey him in a way that honors him as God. And while God might not give us all the answers that we want right now, to all the questions that we have, he has given us a pretty clear direction for right now and the kinds of things that we ought to do. 
He's calling us, know me. Grow in your knowledge of me. Grow in your knowledge of what I desire for you in obedience. This is our present reality. And it might not be what we, the kind of answers that we want from him. But that command does give us a sense of purpose, even when we don't understand all else that might be taking place. Know him and obey him. And such a command can produce for us an immense amount of joy. But I also realize that that being the answer that God gives to us can also leave some in despair. Because the questions that come at us can be so overwhelming. And so what we need to consider is that God doesn't just say, fear me and obey me. But he also gives us a vision of the future. He gives us hope for a future that allows us to be able to trust him. As we get to know him more, as we, get to, as we obey him more, we're able to trust him more by seeing the future, which is our ultimate direction in life. Let me show you that in our passage. Look at the final verse of the passage. The teacher says, For God will bring every deed into judgments, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Now I wonder, as you hear that sentence, how do you feel about that sentence? For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing. What's your experience of it? Because I think there's probably one of three ways that we hear that verse and three ways that we feel, we feel about it. Number one, for some, you might hear the whole notion of judgment and you might think it's ridiculous. Because for some, you have a conception of God where he uh, is a loving God, and so him as a loving God, that doesn't quite compute for you with him being a God of judgments. But the question is, what kind of God leaves injustice and wickedness unjudged? I mean, what kind of corrupt judge and ruler never brings justice against the unjust and the wicked? And so if you have this notion of rejecting a God of judgment because you only believe in a God of Love, I would challenge you just to say, by rejecting the judgment of God, you don't get a God of love. Rather, you get a God of apathy. You get a God of cold-hearted indifference to real suffering and injustice. And so I would employ you, don't reject the notion of judgment, but consider it further. But if we take the, the, the notion of judgment, another way that we might feel about it is that that might actually produce some fear, the fear that I was talking about earlier, the fear of being judged by God. There, is, there ought to be a genuine fear when we come before God, when he's going to judge us. Every hidden thing, whether good or evil, will be on full display. God knows it and will judge it. And so, for some, maybe there's just a genuine fear because you know how much you have actually failed. You know the extent to which you'd be guilty if judged by a perfectly righteous and holy God. And so as we take this idea of judgments, right, this future judgment that's to come, we could have that fear if we accept that judgment's to come, but there's also a third way that we could experience that judgment. Because for those who trust in Jesus— that verse of judgment actually produces hope and joy. When you hear about the judgment of God, what is your reaction? Is it to reject it? Is it to have fear? Or does it produce hope and joy? Why would it produce hope and joy for those in Christ? 
Well, just consider a few passages. Consider Isaiah 53 that tells us that we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way and the Lord has laid down on him, Jesus, the iniquity of all. That our straying has been laid on Jesus. John 5 says that whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Romans 8 tells us that therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. See, when we hear judgments for the Christian, those who trust in Jesus, we can look at the coming judgment and experience great hope and great joy in knowing that, yes, every evil deed, every wicked act, every selfish act, every injustice, it will be judged and punished. But in Christ, he has taken upon himself that punishment for those who trust in him. That though we are guilty on the cross, Jesus takes the judgment of our sin on himself. That means that God is just and that he's bringing justice, but he's also merciful, welcoming those through this work of Jesus. So that now when we look ahead to the future, and here's where all of this comes together, when we look ahead to the future, we know where we are heading. We are heading toward this communion with God through Jesus. We are heading toward the experience of complete and total victory over sin and death. We are heading toward a restored and renewed creation, no longer marred by the effects of sin, where we're no longer burdened by the unanswered questions and the longings that we possess, but rather complete and total rest. And what that means is that the uncertainties of the past will one day become clear. The commands of the present will be joy-filled as we want and desire to obey God. And we don't obey him out of begrudging submission, but out of hope-filled joy. And for the hope of the future, that God is at work in a way that we cannot know, but promises us restoration if we trust in him, if we trust his son. And so if I could be so bold, is to kind of restate verse 13 and 14 and kind of include all the rest of Scripture as an interpretation of what we're reading there in verses 13 and 14, you could essentially understand verses 13 and 14 to say that there are many questions unanswered about life. But here is the conclusion of the matter. Have a reverent awe for God and do what he has commanded. For in Jesus, he has taken away all judgment that is due you, but promises to bring judgment against every evil deed. And so trust in Jesus now, the one who takes upon himself that judgment and live a life, though, I, with, though with many unanswered questions, with hope-filled joy, knowing what God has done for you into the future. I pray that this be... Uh, where our heart's affections go, that we look upon Jesus and what he has done, that it might bring hope and a rest to us now. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, Lord, for, for what you have accomplished in Jesus. It's an accomplishment that extends to us great hope and joy. 
So often we look at the world in which we live and we feel lost and unsure about how to make sense of it all. But as we look to Jesus and what he has done, we are given the confidence to be able to say, you know what, I can't, I can't know it all, but I'm going to know you more. I want to grow in a, a, a reverence and awe for you. And as I do, I want to obey you. Sometimes I'm not going to be able to do much more than that, but God, may that be all that we need in those moments of despair. And I trust that your spirit will meet us there to show us your goodness, to show us your glory, and to make plain to us the ways that we can live a life in obedience to you. Fix our eyes on Jesus, that we might experience that joy. This is in, in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.